to the imagination. Okay, it should be recording. Um, I'm really sorry. All no right. problem. <laughs> All right. Hey, everybody. Uh, we are back, and I'm not dead. This is Trash Cannon. Uh, we had a bit of an unplanned hiatus for about half a year, but I'm going to try to bring it back, and helping me do that is my good friend Bill Smiley. Who Hello. Who is joining me to talk about Hellraiser 3. Is it one of the most underestimated sequels or is it one of the most rightfully reviled we'll uh decide that today yeah uh, i think it's a bit of both really. yeah. yeah hmm deja vu <laughs> yeah we uh yeah we had a bit of a tech issue but hopefully hopefully that's behind us and we won't sink the entire because there there is good there is a official lost episode of the podcast that I recorded with Adam Clark that's uh, oh, no. now been lost to oblivion because of tech issues but um, they were rather more unavoidable uh, but yeah still <sighs> that's one for the ages and, and we talked about the uh, uh, Doctor Who Trial of a Time Lord which is probably ah. the first episode of the series so far but anyway yeah. Uh, I don't know. I kind of miss the Doctor Who train, so I'll take your word for it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you'll you'll probably also be hearing me talk about um, for another podcast run by a mutual acquaintance of ours. I might be talking about Eric Roberts as the master. Oh. Soon. Fingers uh, crossed. Yeah, I know what podcast you're talking about. Okay. Great. 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 <laughs> anyway. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's that's sort of my idea too of. Hellraiser 3, because when I first watched it, uh, I, I guess I would have been in high school then, um, I hated it, um, I was indignant about it, I got, it was just like the worst thing ever made, um, I don't know, watching it again, and this probably is like the first time in a really long time that I'd seen it, I, I have more sympathy for it, and my conclusion is, that it's not great, but like by the standards of low budget '90s horror, yeah, it it should get like a B minus at least. Yeah, like uh, yeah, like I said before, you know, we it kind of got et by the recording not being on. Uh, it's it's kind of a bad Hellraiser sequel, but it's it's sort of the schlocky watch on cable late at night kind of movie. It's reasonably entertaining. I like. When it was over, I kind of figured, you know, if you're the kind of person that would stay up late on Friday night to catch, you know, Wishmaster on, you know, <laughs> USA Up All Night or something, then, yeah, you'd probably get some fun out of this. Yes. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, it's a it, it's a it's a decent low budget horror movie, but a horrible sequel to Hellraiser. And uh, Clive Barker himself, I you know, I, I do research for all these episodes and there's like yeah. a. Clyde Barker interview. I'm not, I can't remember which one. I want to say Fingoria, but don't uh, cite me on it. Mm-hmm. He described the movie as, and th- these aren't his exact words. I, I forgot to write them down, but he described the movie as messy but fun. Yeah. And and, and I think that's that's actually a fair assessment. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um. But anyway, yeah. Some trivia, real quick. I'm not going to go into all the details, but. The movie was caught in development hell because it passed through um, several hands, eventually ending up with the. 
the Weinsteins. Oh dear. Um, although it, it apparently didn't, I don't, uh, but apparently it didn't get like the same treatment as other Weinstein casualties like Crow yeah. City of Angels. Um, and I'll get back to that. Um, but yeah, it, it went through several hands. Uh, and, and it's kind of funny that we talk about it being a bad, bad Hellraiser sequel because the people who wrote the script were Tony Randall, who directed the last movie, Hellbound mm-hmm. Hellraiser 2, yeah. and Peter Atkins, who wrote the script for that movie. Yeah. Uh, but the movie was directed by Anthony Hill Cox, which, again, I, yeah. I, I, it's like one of those bits of trivia that I keep forgetting because he did so much schlocky 90s movies. Yeah, Waxwork 2. <laughs> wax he did this one called Full Moon that I watched a while back that's basically like, okay, have you seen Point Break? Well, yes. Full Moon is basically Point Break, but instead of like bank robbing surfers, they're werewolves. <laughs> Only oh God, a new yeah. I've, I've never seen yeah. That. The only yeah, the only problem with it is like um, it's not a big budget thing, so the werewolf makeup kind of looks like '90s syndicated TV show Wolverine. So <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah. I need to see that because he he did direct one of my favorite vampire movies. Sundown, the Vampire and Retreat. Yeah, I've been hearing about that, but I've never really gotten around to seeing it. I know Bruce Campbell's in it as kind of a Van Helsing character. Yeah, yeah, I genuinely like it. Uh, I know some people disagree with me on that. I, I people, it's one of those movies that people either seem to really like or they hate it. Yeah, I think it's on Tubi or something right now. The kind of wonderful trashy video store of streaming services. Oh, no. <laughs> oh yeah, Tubi is my. Uh, between Tubi and Shudder, that's, yeah. that's probably where I get most of my stuff now. Oh, yeah, and he also did, of course, um, Warlock 2, The Armageddon, which is another favorite movie of mine, okay. mostly because I, of Julian Sands. But, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I didn't know that, but yes, that absolutely sounds like a movie Anthony Hickox would direct. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and um, the, the woman who plays Terry in this movie, or uh, yeah. not maybe not Terry, um... Oh, God, it's already started. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, God, that's why I'm so confused, because... Because there's a character named Terry in the movie, but the lead actress playing a different character is also named Terry. Yes. Oh, man, that's going to bite me in the ass. No, yeah. well, it already has. Um, but, yeah, Paula Marshall, who plays Terry, was also in Warlock 2. And, uh, yeah, uh, this that, one, she's... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to add a quick note about the cast. We have, like, two. The cast isn't really remarkable, but we do have Terry Farrell as Joey, and she was in Babylon 5, and Paula Marshall, who went on to play, um, I believe, Dax in Deep Space Nine. No, you, uh, Terry Farrell is the one who played Dax. Oh, right. Thank right. you. Yeah. Yeah, Hellraiser has a surprisingly large number of, like, Star Trek Deep Space Nine cast members. Like, Andrew Robinson's in the original movie, and I think there's a couple other people mm-hmm. in the sequels. Yeah. You're right, you're right, you have Dax. Um, but is it, I thought there was a Babylon 5, but maybe I'm... Maybe I wrote my got my notes wrong, but anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, what a great return to, to from my hiatus. Um, anyway... Chaos uh, reigns. <laughs> this wasn't the original idea for the. I don't know how yeah. widespread this is, but originally yeah. it was supposed to be about 
Julia from the first two movies. But Claire Higgins, and I, I looked everywhere yeah. and I couldn't find any explanation. I guess she didn't want to be typecast or she wanted to move on to something else. She said no. So instead they went with a movie that would have focused on like the origins of Leviathan and the box. And it would have been in ancient Egypt and a pharaoh becomes the first Cenobite, which hmm. I really want to travel to an alternate universe and see that movie because I'm yeah. sure it's fantastic. Yeah. Mm, and yeah, that does sound pretty interesting. Sounds better than Hellraiser Bloodlines, at least. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. Uh, although I, I, I do think Bloodlines is, even though it got the, um, even though the director disavowed it, I, I do think it's better than this movie. Yeah, there, there, there's some interesting stuff in there, at least. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's co- at least it's coherent because, like, this movie starts with a guy being pulled into an ER um, mm-hmm. with the signature Cenobite chains waving around him and shooting lightning yeah. and then he's and never then mentioned he, again. Yeah, this is a scene that introduces Terry and Terry, by the way. Yeah. Um mm-hmm. Terry Farrell's this reporter who's hanging out at the ER hoping for something um kind of newsworthy to happen. And you know, at first it looked like it's gonna be, you know, kind of a nothing a night her cameraman packs up and leaves. And, you know, as she's preparing to leave herself, that's when the guy comes in with the chains on him and all that. And that's and the Terry character. Let's just keep this confusing is the uh, is with him and panicking and stuff like that. And um, honestly, there was this weird moment in like the uh, early in that scene before all the stuff starts happening. They have this shot of like the nurse that's with Terry Farrell's character who's uh, and we focus a lot on her, like taking these surgical implements out of a box and laying them out. And she even starts petting them like, you know, like stroking them or something. But it's so weird because why is that there? You never come back to that. Right. Yeah. But one thing I will give this scene, the bit where Terry Farrell, who, God, I cannot remember what her, Joey, that's her character's name. And the build up to like the guy being brought in is actually pretty good. You know, she's walking down one of those like, you know, horror movie hospital wall, hallways, you know, where they're like, you know, underlit. There's nobody there. But then you kind of start seeing the ambulance lights kind of reflecting off of things. And then boom, that's actually a pretty good little build up. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And, yeah, one thing I really kind of took away from that scene is Anthony Hickox is real big fan of Sam Raimi because it's very Raimi-esque, the zooms, the fast cuts and all that, very Evil Dead-ish. Yeah, and that's actually why, um, it, I mean, Clyde Barker was diplomatic in the interviews, but he really didn't want him to direct this movie because he was afraid he wouldn't take the source material seriously enough. Um, and you can yeah, totally get the misgivings. Yeah, there. Yeah. On the other hand, all the kind of trying to ape Raimi that made me think, okay, what would Sam Raimi's Hellraiser be like? And my general conclusion is that would be freaking amazing. <laughs> you thought Bruce Campbell was abused before. 
Yeah, it yeah. would be. Yeah, a comedic take on Hellraiser might not be an entirely bad idea. Uh, I mean, for a sequel, but maybe as a spinoff. That'll be interesting. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I'm just picturing Bruce Campbell getting grabbed by the chains and dragged, and as he's getting dragged, he's just bouncing off of everything. And he, and he complains about how, but the puzzle wasn't even that hard. Yeah. <laughs> the thing about Joey, our protagonist, is she's ambitious, but she's stuck doing. Yeah, the kind of the dead end beats, late night, nothing really happening stuff. Mm-hmm. And she has ambition and wants to. I, I I don't know if she wants to go beyond. Um, the, it's the movie's a little hazy about that because it doesn't yeah. give any character enough. Yeah, time her to her defining character moments, getting a little ahead of ourselves, are like she's a reporter who's ambitious, and she has dreams about her dad who died in Vietnam, and that's kind of it. Yeah, 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 yeah. The Vietnam. Terry Farrell is trying, but you know she's decent. But doesn't really give her anything to work with. Yeah. Yeah. Fun fact, though, in an earlier version of the script, she actually makes a deal with Pinhead to become a um, successful reporter. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how that, that would have worked. <laughs> yeah. and, and I think that that's why I hated this movie as a kid, because it really does accelerate that process by which the Cenobites go away from Clyde Barker's original concept as just these entities that are obsessed with the extremes of pleasure and pain and just turn them into demons with an yeah. S&M theme. Yeah, Pinhead's basically Satan in this movie. Mm-hmm. But something I've realized now, uh, and, and you probably, because you watched all of them recently for this uh, mm-hmm. talk, is like... That's a problem, but it gets started in Hellbound. Uh, yeah, like one of the things that I always found kind of interesting about the original Hellraiser and the Hellbound Heart, the novella it's based on, is, and it's an idea I don't think any of the follow-ups, even when Clive Barker had more of a hand in really capitalize on, is that, and, you know, that famous line, angels to some, demons to others, that uses to introduce the Cenobites. It kind of suggests that if there is a spiritual, you know, kind of other plane of existence, it's not what religion has taught us. It's this completely alien thing. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, depending on who kind of like pierces the veil and experiences it, it could be seen as hell or it could be seen as heaven. Probably if you're a real just gigantic freak. But, you know, yeah, and I don't. And from like Hellraiser two on, it kind of becomes it's hell. Mm-hmm. You know, it's in the title. I guess we got to be literal about this. I mean, I guess it was inevitable because mm-hmm. you know, movies are a, a mass audience. Yeah. Genre and like, peep, it, it probably was going to get dumbed down, but it it definitely would have been interesting exploring yeah. movie more movies with Barker's original concept. And I just realized how hard it is to talk about the plot of this movie because, like, just it's just kind of like a string of things happening. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, although I should mention that I kept thinking the cameraman was being played by, even though, like, on an intellectual level, I knew that that wasn't the case. I kept thinking that uh, Hulk Hogan was playing the cameraman because he has <laughs> yes, the same because he's got that stash. weird handlebar mustache. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that guy does not really feel like he should was really part of it part of this movie that he feels like he should be in like a western or something 
Yeah. Yeah, and his character, like, they, uh, I, I kind of feel like they were implying that she sees him as a mentor, but he, like, he, he has benevolent feelings toward her, but there's, like, some darker level where he sees mm-hmm. her as a potential sexual conquest. Um, and I kept yeah. thinking that they were going to explore that, but, you know, they really... Yeah, don't. they don't. Got to get to the big, dumb monster rampage. For, mm-hmm. you, know, to, you know, takes priority over everything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, trying to find out what happened at the ER leads. Um, and I keep wanting to call her Ter- Joey. Uh, we should say Joey, just to avoid yeah. the Terry confusion. Leads Joey to this... I don't even know what to call it. It's like a nightclub, cum, uh, S&M club, cum, fancy restaurant. (laughs) Yeah, the, like, different parts of it just don't feel like they're the same building. (laughs) Especially the restaurant, man. It's like, you know, kind of fancy nightclub, and then you've got this concert hall where kind of, like, sums up, um, you know, probably sums up Clive Barker's misgiving. They've got, like, this... 80s heavy metal band playing that does not really feel like it should be performing at this club. The band, it's um the band, and it even turns into kind of a mini music video for a few seconds. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it, that's uh, Armored Saint, by the way. Um, I actually have the album that song's on. <laughs> yeah, if I don't know, I guess if they're known for anything, it's that their lead singer was kind of the uh, kind of left the band and became the frontman for Anthrax, one of the big, you know. 80s thrash metal bands from like the late 90s, early 2000s. That's about it. Oh, nice. But but do you think they were uh, a suitable choice? Because I'm not familiar yeah. with them at all. Yeah, no, I don't think... It's kind of like, like you said, um, they moved away kind of from what Clive Barker was doing and tried to make it into more kind of a what was sort of popular with um, horror movies back back around that time. I think this came out in 92. Mm-hmm. So sort of the post Nightmare on Elm Street, we've got Dokken doing a heavy metal song over the credits and a <laughs> music video with Freddie in it. So we got to do something like that. Yeah, they even end the movie with a song by Motorhead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and, and the and video I, was also directed by yeah, um, Hill Cox. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I love Motorhead. They're one of my favorite bands, but Motorhead is not the band you do to do a soundtrack for Hellraiser. <laughs> Fair enough. Although the music video where he plays poker with Pinhead. Yeah, is, yeah, that's pretty great. Awesome. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and the and the whole nightclub thing is run by JP, who is just really. I mean, it's kind of ironic given what would happen with the Weinstein's, but he's basically like a, a, a sexual predator, um, but it's not really fleshed out. Yeah, there's like some idea that he might be this. Like he's into collecting weird art, but there's also some lines later on that suggest he might be also an artist himself. It's just, and then there's that, well, we'll get to that about that thing Pinhead tells him about that gun he has. Mm-hmm. And it's just not really developed yet. And, but yeah, he's kind of ironic about the uh, Harvey Weinstein connection because he, JP is basically Hellraiser 3's Frank for like the first half. For those who haven't, um, See, in the first movie, the Cenobites aren't the villain in the original Hellraiser or the first sequel. They're kind of these entities that are 
sort of around kind of on the edges of the narrative and then show up in the last act. The main villain is kind of this hedonistic sleazebag named Frank, who is was someone who got um, kind of fell into their clutches because he was trying to find more extreme experiences and that led him to summon the Cenobites and he got a little more than he bargained for. And he escapes through like somebody spilling blood on where his remains were. And he comes back as sort of this half formed vampiric ghoul. And the first movie is all about him trying to restore himself so he can kind of escape and get away from the Cenobites. And yeah, yeah, and they establish how evil and vicious Frank is. I mean, it's heavily implied that he may have molested his own niece, Kirsty, who is the protagonist yep. of the first two Hellraiser movies. Yeah. Um, I, I've been told that that wasn't the intent, but I, I don't yeah. really believe that. Yeah. Because uh, it's just all over the place. Um, and... Yeah, JP, uh, I mean, we could, yeah, we could get back to his quote-unquote dark secret later, but I, I think it really gets at what the main problem with this movie is and why it's so surprising that two people who worked on the second one also worked on this one. Because, like, all right, Hellraiser 1 is basically about the dark secrets behind this respectable, ostensibly happy middle-class marriage. Right. Um, and the second movie is about a humanitarian psychiatric institute that in reality is run by a man who is essentially a serial killer or, or would have been if he wasn't allowed to practice medicine. And so it's like this whole yin and yang thing or, or the the corruption hiding just beneath the skin of these respectable uh facades and like that doesn't come up in hellraiser 3 at all no it's like he's just a jerk from where go (laughs) yeah and and like i kind of feel like maybe that's what they were getting at by combining the um sleazy nightclub with the respectable restaurant but it just does but instead of like having that duality, it just doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah, because the the restaurant shows up in one scene and then it's never seen again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think you see it uh, during the uh, during the post massacre scene. Oh um, yeah. Uh, but only briefly. I I I, uh, I don't know. I always try to take careful notes, but. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, a movie like Hellraiser 3, it's kind of hard to pay attention to sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> At least until Panic comes along. But anyway, we, yeah. um, we're skipping ahead a lot. Uh, yeah. The person who I would consider the third major character in the movie besides uh, Pinhead is Terry. Not Terry mm-hmm. the actress, Terry the character. Yeah, yeah not Shawnee Smith. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I kind of wish it was Shawnee Smith. Then with her and Terry Farrell in it, this could be a prequel to Becker. This would be a fantastic uh, prequel. How how Becker became such a meanie because <laughs> right. the Cenobites murdered all of his friends. I, I I really liked her character, and I think this is yeah. the movie really does him dirty because she like comes across as really uh, street wary, but also naive in a yeah. lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Like she's seen some shit, but she still has some kind of. Uh, innocence to her 
yeah, she's kind of this person who's been a runaway and been through a bunch of bad relationships. And she's really the only character in the movie that gets kind of fleshed out any. Yeah. And it got to the point that I kind of wish she was the focus of it in some ways, like, you know, a story of this sort of cast off of society who's kind of been mistreated by everyone suddenly, you know, considering how she ends up in the story, I don't know, finds home among, you know, S&M monsters from beyond the veil is <laughs> that that's maybe not perfect, but that is sort of a story you could tell in the Hellraiser universe, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I, and to be fair, I think like the movie kind of gets it because uh, they develop a really interesting friendship between um, Terry and Joey. Uh, I almost said Terry and Terry. And um, and I don't know if like that was intentional, if they really were trying to do something new, like have a instead of having a heterosexual romantic relationship have a friendship between two women be the core of the movie mm-hmm. or if they were just like playing on the friendship of uh tiffany and um ashley in the last movie yeah but it feels like it could have led to something and then, and then yeah she terry just kind of ends up disappearing halfway for the movie and when she shows up again spoiler alert she's been turned into a cenobite and that's it. Like you said, they did her dirty. Yeah, and and I like I I had to rewatch the scenes in question a couple times because it honestly made no sense to me why mm-hmm. why why uh, Terry ends up feeling betrayed by Joey because she gets a message a voice message saying congratulations you're getting a job in another city mm-hmm. uh, which I guess would be a step up. Yeah, but like. Joey's upfront about the fact that she's just doing this story for the sake of her career. Um, and it doesn't contradict the fact that she promised she'd help get Terry a real job and, mm-hmm. you know, help her. So I, I don't know. Did you, uh, how did you read all that? I, yeah. <laughs> and that's basically about the best way I can put it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it, I mean, yeah, and that's another missed opportunity. It's like having it be more elaborate how she gets corrupted and turned into a Cenobite. Uh, although at least at least it's implied that she is corrupted as a Cenobite, and it's not like Cenobitism is something that spread like vampirism or yeah. <laughs> becoming a werewolf like it is with other characters. Yeah. Um, oh, we'll get to those guys. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Terry runs away, and JP corrupts her, and it turns out JP has been working in partnership with uh, Pinhead this entire time. Who, after yeah. the events of the last film, is trapped in a statue. Yeah, that kind of looks like you know Rodin's, Rodan's Gate of Gates of Hell with a little bit of H.R. Geiger. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that statue. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. I don't know. It'd be definitely be a conversation piece in your living room. Yeah, that's what I kind of like about it. That JP sets it up at the foot of his bed. Like, I want to wake yeah. up to this every morning. And that was before yeah. he realized, you know, it's yeah. possessed. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, he finds out because uh, he just so happens to be bitten by a mouse, which yeah. I guess was a reference to the first movie where all hell breaks loose when somebody cuts their hand open on a nail. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I do kind of like his reaction because, you know, like you said, he gets bit by a mouse and there's this, kind of this hilarious shot of him throwing the mouse like right at the screen like we're watching a 3D movie. <laughs> God, imagine Hellraiser in 3D. <laughs> but yeah, I'm and then that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, I kind of am. And it like his blood hits the statue, and I don't know. I just kind of laugh at his reaction because the statue starts moaning. It absorbs the blood, and parts of it start glowing. And the part that started glowing actually ends up moving to a different part of the statue later in the movie because that's Pinhead's face or whatever. And his reaction is like just to sit there and go, "Whoa." You know, I figure if I saw that happen, I would have a bit more of an emotional reaction and not, you know, act like I just had some really good cheese fries or something. <laughs> yeah, and, and of course he picks up the statue at an art gallery run by a sketchy yeah. looking homeless person who... Yeah, who's supposed to be the... I'm, it's supposed to be the hobo from the first movie, or only now he's played by a completely different actor like the original one was pretty clearly a british dude and this one's kind of this american guy who looks a little bit like chris christopherson actually. yes yeah he looks a lot cleaner than the hobo from yeah, the first he, movie yeah like he, he finally took a shower or something <laughs> yeah yeah that's one of the weird things about kind of hellraiser this is the first of the series that very definitively takes place in america because the first movie I think is the first two movies I think might have been originally intended to take place in England because that's where Clive Barker's from. That's where the original story is set. But um, I don't know. The studio got a little sketchy about maybe having so many British people in the cast. So there's a lot of like English voices, American voices dubbed in and stuff like that. And it never really gives you a clear idea of where this is supposed to take place. Mm-hmm. Is it? Either it's like, you know, a version of of England where there are a lot of American people or, you know, a part of America where there's a lot of British people. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, this this one takes place in Los Angeles, definitively. Yeah. Yeah. The place where (laughs) low-budget productions go. Basically what happens next, what, I don't know, I guess we get to the point where JP picks up this girl at the uh, bar he's at the bar or whatever and of course takes her upstairs to his apartment where the statue is a little you know skinamax after dark action happens and then jp tries to kick her out and honestly that actress is kind of amazing most of the cast is decent enough this well it's pretty clear she was kind of hired just to get just because she looks nice in a bra in a black bra right and, she talks kind of like a robot that's trying to pretend to be this cheerful kind of valley girl. And the pauses between her lines, you can kind of hear the ellipsis, you know, this is your art dot, dot, dot. So cool and radical dot, dot, dot. But it's funny when like JP kicks her out, um, she just goes from like zero to one fifty screaming her freaking head off like you got that shitty prince who lives in a shitty kingdom <laughs> and of course she steps a little too close to the now 
sort of awakened pillar and of course the chain shootout grabber they end up like skinning her because you know we got to do a smash and grab on the imagery from the first two movies and you know it absorbs her into the statue itself and that kind of starts to wake up pinhead more you know he looks more like his normal his kind of like regular self you know he gets the pins in his face and all that and he starts talking to jp and all that and jp of course of course is kind of freaked out and like i said that dirty little secret of his jp pulls out a gun to like try to shoot at pinhead and pinhead says this line that is pretty much never followed up and oh that's the gun you used to kill your parents isn't it right yeah Yeah. and then of course jp shoots at him and Pinhead just spits the bullets out because, I don't know, I guess Pinhead took some you know, pointers from Bruce Leroy and he has the glow now. Yeah, that that always bothered me because it kind of felt like a last minute rewrite because mm-hmm. he kind of realized that JP is a jerk, but he hasn't really, he's not really doing anything that makes him yeah. unlikable, unlike Frank or Dr. Chenard from the second Or like movie. literal monsters. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, you know douchebag hmm. and also i just kind of laugh at the gun he pulls out because it's this freaking hand cannon this nickel plated desert eagle i'm like okay that's his i don't know that's the gun he used to kill his parents who is this guy scarface <laughs> yeah i didn't even notice that that's great oh but a, a bit of trivia about the woman who gets her skin ripped off um that scene was actually one of several scenes, and and this is what I mean when uh, Clyde Barker wasn't done as dirty as some of the other creators that the Weinstein's work with, because they actually called him and said, you know, this movie needs a little punching up. Um, mm-hmm. Is there anything you'd recommend? And uh, having showing the woman getting her skin ripped off by chains was a Clyde Barker contribution. Of course, it was. There were two other scenes like that. Can you guess at least one of them? I'm just curious. I know. I'm willing to bet it's the church scene later. Actually, no, uh, oh, which wow. really surprised me. It, it's when uh, Joey, at near the end of the movie, goes all S&M all of a sudden for yeah. no reason. Yeah, that thing comes out and chains her up or whatever. Yeah, yeah and the other scene where she's wandering the club and all the dead oh. bodies or or sit up and used as decoration that that was uh yeah. that was clyde barker too so okay yeah fun facts <laughs> okay yeah that absolutely sounds like something clive would add in <laughs> yeah. um yeah so but yeah the other funny thing about the scene where pinhead reveals himself to jp is that he basically turns into a motivational speaker i know i know yes yeah, so he gets that weird line i've actually got uh it looks like someone like Lily added that line to a picture of Pinhead and you know how like they'll do internet memes where they'll take like weird characters and put like inspirational quotes on them. as just kind of a joke. Yeah, they did that, but it's an actual line from the movie and all that I got on my phone here. Let me check. If you have a quality, be proud of it. Let it define you, whatever it is. I don't know. I just kind of want to see a whole thing of like Pinhead motivational speaker. <laughs> Yeah, that that would be a great tie-in. I mean, we could still do that, maybe, uh, at some point. That really helped change my opinion of the movie. It's like that, Doug Bradley is having the time of his life. Yes. This, if you are love hearing Doug Bradley monologue, this is the movie for you, you know? Yeah, and you could probably make a drinking game out of how many times he says, 
flesh. <laughs> yep. There's no good, no evil, only flesh. Yep. Such a great movie. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, things things take a bad turn for JP within a really. T- I, I don't know. I should have counted yeah, it, the number of scenes, but it happens really quickly. Like in a couple of minutes, almost because. It's obviously trying to do the Frank, Julie, you know, Frank getting his sister-in-law who he had a, an affair with, bring him victim so he can restore himself thing. But they go through it really fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah uh, JP tries to do to Terry what he did to the uh, to the uh, girl from earlier. And Terry manages to overpower him and yeah she takes out a pair of brass knuckles and punches him in the face <laughs> which was great I, again this is why i kind of wish she was the main character yeah yeah exactly I kinda, yeah I, I this is why i think like the script must have gone through a bunch of different drafts yeah and um, also i couldn't find much information about it yeah and also i get the feeling like maybe this might have been a longer movie that got chopped down to 90 minutes yeah yeah, exactly. Because otherwise, the plot really does. You have to fill in so many gaps with the plot, and I still don't know, like half yeah. the stuff that happens. But uh, um, yeah. yeah, she she beats up JP. Pinhead turns on him immediately, as as you do. Yeah. And um, and I and I really like that scene. It kind of goes on a little too long, but I did yeah. kind of like the weirdly realistic take on what would happen, like the fact that she can't. Yeah, yeah, he's a big his guy. Body. She has little, to kick it. Yeah, a little girl. It takes her a while to like nudge him over there, and I don't know. I just kind of wanted him to cut to Pinhead every couple of seconds. Go like, no, 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 no. Take your time. Take your time. But yeah, Pinhead kills JP and doesn't actually absorb him he like i don't know these like pipes or something shoot out and stab him in the head or something and and then somehow but somehow that provides enough of a sacrifice to let pinhead free of his prison and you know it's kind of a cool little shot we get doug bradley in the pinhead get up you know in all his glory and he just kind of holds out his hand to terry and is like shall we yeah it's a great scene yeah. it genuinely is and it, it's main it's really the main reason why i kind of wish that you know terry losing her innocence and becoming a cenobite was a bigger part of the movie mm-hmm. um because i mean we got to see a guy who was already evil get seduced into becoming a cenobite uh in hellbound but we haven't really seen someone who was at least mostly, at least somewhat innocent, uh, get willingly, willingly become a Cenobite. Yeah. Yeah. There are, there are kind of a few missed opportunities in this. Yeah. Yeah. I would say it's like mostly missed opportunities, Mm -hmm. but there's enough missed opportunities that it actually adds up to a, to a cohesive whole, um, along with a few genuinely great scenes. Yeah. But, uh, after that, uh, yeah, we kind of cut back to, Joey, who's dreaming about her dad dying in Vietnam before yeah. she was born. And Joey really doesn't do much in this story. I'm sorry. No, yeah, she doesn't really. Um, but I don't know. And then she starts suddenly dreaming about like a battlefield on World War One. You know, kind of this horrible trench full of dead bodies and all that. And that's when she meets Elliot Spencer, who is who was once the human form of Pinhead, because apparently at the end of 
Hellraiser 2, like, you know, we were, it's revealed that the Cenobites were all human once. And then when Dr. Chenard, who's kind of the villain, one of the main villains of the second one, kind of gets turned into a Cenobite himself, he gets into this fight with the other ones and ends up killing them all. Mm-hmm. And apparently fin- Pinhead physically dying kind of separated um, Elliot Spencer, who who's this kind of British officer, from Pinhead himself. And Elliot Spencer is kind of a ghost in limbo that can only like interact in the world with people in the world through dreams while Pinhead's kind of rampaging around out, out in the real world, that sort of thing. And, you know, he kind of enlists Joey to help out. Yeah, you know, you need to get the Cenobites puzzle box and use that to send Pinhead back or whatever and all that. And then we cut to, um, you know, back to the club after after Pinhead's been freed. And yeah, I don't know. I kind of just I kind of was thinking this. This is kind of the movie that tried to start the Freddy Kruegerification of the. Cenobites, especially Pinhead, because like we said in the in the first two movies, the Cenobites are just kind of side characters, but like they were the they're the image used to sell the series, but you know, they're not the main villains. Here they basically, you know, we've got this big iconic monster. Let's make him the main bad guy. And and you know, the reason I bring up Freddy Krueger is because this scene reminds me a lot of like the end of Nightmare on Elm Street 2 when Freddy attacks the pool party. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, you you almost expect Pinhead to go, "You're all my children now." But yeah, Pinhead just kind of blows the door off of this club restaurant, whatever the hell this place is, and walks in and just starts killing everybody. Actually, kind of one thing that was kind of disappointing about this kind of big rampage thing is like this place has all these like weird sculptures and stuff, kind of decorating the place. And right before Pinhead comes in and starts like tr- killing everyone, you see them move and start to come alive, but they never attack anybody. And I yeah. again, missed opportunity. Yeah, it could have been like um, that scene from Beetlejuice, except the yeah. <laughs> factual death. Are, are rated mode. <laughs> okay, there's this one death, even though it's kind of a we'll get into more to the character this happens to later. I, I don't know. The DJ kind of cracks me up in that scene because people are like getting massacred left and right. And he just is not reacting to this the way you should have. It's like, well, this is weird. <laughs> Especially when CDs just start levitating <laughs> and end up killing him. It's just, oh, what is going on with you, dude? I, I guess it was supposed to be a, uh, a, a druggy joke, but yeah, something like it? that. Yeah. And then, um, you know, Terry gets kind of a weird scene, kind of Terry turns on her seat, her TV, and she sees like a news report of the massacre going on at the club. And she gets the puzzle box and leaves. But then we pan down to reveal that, oh, her TV's unplugged or something. And like somehow Pinhead is sending signals to her TV. That didn't really make any sense to me. No, yeah, it's like every mediocre horror movie has that scene where the antagonist has special powers that don't make any sense. Yeah, like as much as I like the Hellraiser movies, you know, the consistency is really not one of their strong points. 
No. <laughs> oh, yeah, and he also sends the same signal to the camera guy to bring him over, which yeah. especially doesn't make sense because he doesn't even really know that. I mean, we know that he's been targeting Joey because she has she got the box from Terry. Uh, yeah, but, uh, yeah, but why is he going after this guy? Yeah, exactly. Just to, just to yeah. make it worse. Yeah, and, you know, Terry arrives at the club, finds everybody dead, and, you know, it's kind of a kind of a neat-looking scene, very cool, very well-lit, well-shot, stuff like that. There is one kind of goofy moment in it. They pan over some of the dead bodies, and there's this guy on a pool table who's got, like, a couple of billiard balls shoved in his mouth. You know, you know that, like, um, kind of famous photo of the circus guy who could hold a bunch of... <laughs> billiards in his mouth it looks like that and it's just such too absurd to be really horrific so i wonder why that shot is in there <laughs> so i did kind of have a laugh when i was like okay what if that guy got turned into a cinnabite you know just walking around just you know rampaging around spitting eight balls at people Pachoo! well it would be no worse than the cinnabites we do get yeah <laughs> yeah and, you know, Terry finally confronts Pinhead. He tries to take the box. Oh, Joey. Tries yeah, to Joey. Well, played by Terry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah she, she confronts Pinhead. We get, you know, this great monologue from Doug Bradley. There's a secret song at the center of the universe, and its sound is razors through flesh. Yes. You know? Yeah, and then he tries to take... This is one bit that confused me. He tries to take the box from her but you know we previously we've previously established that he can't take it from you you have to give it to him so why did he try to do that he's like i don't know he's like well i've never actually tried this let me see <laughs> and yeah and then she you know that he tries to take it from her it shocks him or something and terry you god damn it joey Uses that to um, escape. And that's when the other Cenobites show up. Well, okay, we get this little kind of like her running through the streets. And for some reason, the main way Pinhead is trying to stop her is just have random stuff explode. <laughs> and it's not even like explode in her general area. Like she's on one side of the street and this something on the other side explodes. It's very weird. And also there's like this fire hydrant gets ruptured and an electrical line. And you definitely get a bad editing moment because there's a taxi driver who gets into um, an accident because he's in the midst of the chaos and you think he's already been killed, but he shows up maybe three scenes later getting still running around. Yeah. And that's when the other Cenobites show up and oh my goodness. Yeah, step down. Definitely. Yeah, and I kind of joke that, that the Cenobites are kind of like Black Sabbath. You know, the lineups come and go, but they're always kind of in the shadow of the original four. And I don't know whether to be proud of that or just, you know, slap myself for thinking. Oh, I know. And and I mean, that's what I mean when it's like Cenob- becoming a Cenobite is like a the zombie same as virus, becoming yeah. a vamp- zombie virus. Yeah, because... I mean, um, it, it happens quickly in the other movies. I mean, to be fair, we established that. But 
there's a sense that you're being twisted into this other kind of being, but yeah. these are the people who have been killed already, and, and it's like somehow, they're just resurrected. Yeah, Pinhead can resurrect them and turn them into Cenobites now, because, because you know, consistency. It just ruins and, the whole point and the whole tragedy of what the Cenobites, Cenobites. are. Yeah. Yeah, and these are not particularly great. Like, they're very, like, you know, if Fangoria magazine held a design your own Cenobite contest and maybe did, like, the, went with, like, you know, the third or fourth place winner. Yeah. Yeah, they yeah, fight because the you have the the CD one would be third place, I would say. Yeah. Um, and then the first one we run into is her cameraman who now has, like, the camera fused to his head or something. You know what it reminded me of? Have you ever seen the movie Top Secret? The uh, Zucker Brothers kind of Elvis slash spy movie parody with Val Kilmer? Oh, I have, yeah. Yeah, well, that has a cameo of Peter Cushing in it. And in it, when he's introduced, he's like looking at something through a magnifying glass and his eye is like magnified real big. But the gag is when he takes the magnifying glass away, he's just got a really big eyeball. <laughs> That's what he reminds me of. I'm like, wait, what is, why is that so familiar? And, you know, he's like continuing with like the Freddy Kruegerification of the thing. He's like, you know, spouting off one liners as he's killing people. And he goes like, ready for your close up or that's a wrap and stuff like that. And just, yeah. and he ends up being the highlight because then the other two show up and you've got like CD head who had, who makes robot noises and he's got CDs stuck in his head and he, like pulls CDs out of his body and throws them at people like they're ninja stars. And then the third one that shows up, it's the bartender and he's just this big burly Cenobite who just breathes flames on people. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of course the CDs when they're thrown can cut through metal. and. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's very, very, yeah. You know, they rampage around, they kill some instant, some kind of like random bystanders, but never seem to come close to getting Joey. And, you know, the cops show up, shoot up, shoot out with them. And, you know, they blow up the police and that's, then they just kind of disappear for a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But at least we, after all that goofiness, we get probably one of the best scenes in the franchise when Pinhead comes across a priest and can't help, but, Terrorized yeah, like, him for yeah, it's like, you know, Pinhead. I mean, look at Pinhead. How often do you think that guy gets into a church? Yeah. <laughs> now, this is probably going to be his only chance to do this. He goes into the church. Actually, there's this funny bit right before he goes in. Right before he goes in, you know, t Joey stumbles into the church, finds the priest there. And, she, you know, she starts babbling about demons. And, you know, the priest goes, oh, demons aren't real, my child. They're parables metaphors and then the doors just open and pinhead standing there and joey looks at him and goes and then well what the fuck is that <laughs> and also i just kind of love that shot of pinhead standing in the uh standing in the doorway of the church with you know the light coming in behind him i i just saw that and all i could think was mom says it's my turn on xbox <laughs> Yeah, and then but, and then yeah, there's a scene where he stands behind the altar and he strikes a Christ-like pose and yeah, and everything fantastic. starts exploding because Pinhead can do that now. <laughs> and then the priest gets pissed off and attacks him, and 
literally kind of surprised this was not one of Clive Barker's editions because there's you know, Pinhead literally like rips a part of his flesh off and in kind of this parody of oh god my name's blanking on it uh, okay you know the, the last, last supper yeah okay. yeah um start uh, you know he ma- makes the guy eat it and you know that but while he's doing that Terry uh, Joey. I think we can make a drinking game out of this. Yeah. Um, you know, she starts fidgeting with the box and Pinhead just looks up there and like, oh, right, you're here. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like she was like trying to deliberately save the priest. Um, mm-hmm. and, and by the time, but yeah, I, I honestly can't blame it. Blame Pinhead for seizing the opportunity. And it really is like the a, a fantastic villain scene. Like mm-hmm. Pinhead's remark on hell <laughs> it turns such a limited imagination. <laughs> and Terry runs off and somehow just kind of a bad edit. She somehow ends up at like a construction site or something. Mm. And that's when uh, Terry and JP, who are now Cenobites, show up. And honestly, like I said, this movie does Terry kind of dirty because not only we de- do we not get... Like you said, that story about, you know, the innocent being corrupted by um, Pinhead. But her Cenobite gimmick is kind of ridiculous. Basically, she's a, got a cigarette and her thing is to just jab you with the cigarette. Right. That's that's not really torments of the damned there. You know, it's well, like, yeah, it feels like one of those uh, a scene from a comedy where yeah. you have an elderly person who's a deep smoker and they have to put their cigarette in the uh, tracheotomy or tracheotomy, yeah. And yeah, and I don't know. One of the things that's kind of been a I don't know consistent kind of mis- I don't know mistake or problem with the uh, Hellraiser franchise is that the Cenobites really have this bad habit of just kind of standing there while mm-hmm. while somebody does something that'll like you know banish them or something and that kind of continues here you know they're trying to kill this woman so they can get the box away from her but when they get the chance they just kind of dance around her and you know you know the terry cinnabite is kind of occasionally jabbing her with a cigarette or something and they're like rubbing their hands on her, making like these really goofy booga booga faces at her. And it's, it's really silly. And then pinhead shows up again. And I know I, I kind of laugh at that one line, you know, these are shadows of my former troops and stuff like even pinhead knows these aren't up to snuff, but you know, I, I was going to say, yeah, there's even, a, yeah, that line. It's like, he practically, turns to the camera and says, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah, look what I had to work with. Yeah, uh, yeah and... but I, I mean, Terry does at least get that poignant line about what she dreams now, but it, it really should have been like a moment where yeah. there's like some humanity left in Terry and Joey has to like try to reach it and, you know. Yeah, like I said, yeah, like I said, missed opportunities all throughout. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Uh, and then, you know, the other Cenobites show up and proceed to not do a whole hell of a lot. And Terry, of take a drink. <laughs> yeah, uh, Joey finishes the puzzle box and it start, starts shooting lights out and banishes everybody. And she thinks, 
that's the end and she passes out and she wakes up back in you know a dream she's having about her dad in vietnam and you know i mentioned nightmare on elm street earlier but this scene is just straight up a ripoff of kind of that scene in Nightmare on Elm Street 3 where Freddy poses as Heather Langenkamp's dad so he can get in close, get her to drop her guard so he can kill her. Yeah, because, okay, she's dreaming that her dad comes up to her and says, uh, your daughter, someone was telling me my daughter Joey was, you know, had something she could give to me because she doesn't need it anymore or something like that. And Joey is like, oh, I'm so happy to see you, Daddy, and hands the box over. And when she takes it, she's like, wait, how do you know my name? <laughs> and, of course, it's Pinhead. Yeah. It, apparently it, he, he can, like, invade people's dreams now. Yeah, and it, it was like it was so easy to, to trick her and everything. And it just, like, and before this point, we get, what, only two flashbacks? Because apparently her father... Well, they don't even establish if she knows this for sure, if that's just what she thinks, that um, a rescue copter was about to take her father out, but they thought he was dead, uh, mm-hmm. but he was still alive, and, he, and you know they ended yeah. up leaving her for dead, and they don't... I, I mean, did I miss a line or something, or did they mm-hmm. establish that that's... I, what she I don't remember. Happens? I don't know. I don't think... That, they really don't flesh out that thing very well. Yeah, and I know that that's like the easiest criticism to make. It's like, well, if I wrote the movie, I would have done it this way. But they really should have stuck to one or the other. Because I was, I, I kept thinking that this would be a really interesting movie if like the backstory with her father was at the at the heart of it. That you know, if she was a historian or a National Geographic style journalist who specializes in stories of wartime mysteries or wartime paranormal stories. And she gets obsessed with the disappearance of Elliot Spencer, like this mystery, Mm -hmm. this guy disappeared from an attic only leaving behind a pool of blood. And, you know, that's how she gets involved with the box and pinhead's essence trying to resurrect itself or get out into the world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, of course, Pinhead thinks he's won and all that and goes in, moves in to kill Joey. But then Elliot Spencer shows up and I don't really know what he's was planning to do. His like, yeah, they do that thing where Pinhead like summons that weird S&M bondage gear thing to change up Joey. And (laughs) um, he's trying to tempt him into you know, you know, doing the, you know, you're, you know, I was born out of you. You want this stuff like that. And then Elliot just kind of grabs him and they, I don't, they just, they like merge together like the bad guy at the end of time cop or something for a little bit. And then they reform and it's just pinhead again. But, you know, like while Elliot was struggling with him, that guy got helped Joey get free of the, harness whatever it's called and she starts working on the box and again we've got the the cenobites don't really seem very proactive in trying to stop the person doing something that will you know throw a monkey wrench into their plans you know she's like a couple feet away from he pulls out this knife and just kind of starts slowly walking to (laughs) her taking little baby steps and of course we get 
And of course, Joey completes the box. It turns into this kind of uh, spike shaped thing that looks like Leviathan, the, I don't know, the god of the Cenobites. And she, of course, tells him, go to hell, and <laughs> stabs him with it. And Pinhead just kind of vanishes in this very 90s CGI blob kind of, you know, thing. And that's it. And, and then. And, uh, well, that's not the end of the movie. We get this scene where Joey takes the, well, she wakes up back at the construction site. And so she goes over to this, like, uh, pool of concrete and drops the puzzle box in. And, of course, we get this stinger where, of course, the there's a now building built over it. and But it looks like a larger version of the puzzle box, you know, the interior. Right. Of it. Yeah, and that's actually followed up in Hellraiser Bloodlines, believe it or not. Yeah, and then we cut to Motorhead. Uh, I was just going to say, there's no other reference to the events of this movie in any other Hellraiser media, as far as yeah. I know. Yeah, and then we cut to Motorhead, because like I said, nothing says Hellraiser like, you know, Motorhead, like Lemmy Kilminster. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good music video, though. I, oh, I do yeah. That, I, I like the song. Yeah, it's kind of funny. There are like two versions of it. Ozzy Osbourne co-wrote that with Lemmy, and he put out his own version of it. On. Oh, I'll have to check that out. And there's yeah. your completely useful trivia for the day. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I have to say, like, the plot's a mess, as we hopefully conveyed. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of lost potential for all the characters. But... As a pinhead movie, it it is probably the best it could be because yeah. they don't fall into the trap of making of giving Pinhead his own one liners. It's all Yeah, it's all the camera guy. Yeah, it's all solemn monologues uh for Pinhead and, and it works out beautifully. But and again, that's another way that like the flaws of this movie can actually be traced back to the second movie. Because they do the same to Dr. Chenard, you know, once he becomes a cinema. The doctor is in and all that. (laughs) I recommend vivisection, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, Yeah, when I went back and rewatched it, I'm still trying to figure out, okay, that little worm thing that's like hoisting... Dr. Chenard everywhere when he's a cinemite. Like, what is that attached to? Where does that go? (laughs) It's like Spider-Man's webbing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, well, that was pretty fun. Yeah. Uh, Well, would you say that um, Hellraiser 3, I I think we agree on what the flaws and the strengths of the movie are, but would you describe it as part of the trash canon, or do you think it actually works as a movie on its own? I definitely think it kind of fits in the trash can and it's very much it's very much a kind of late night cable kind of horror movie, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, you got, cra- you know, practical effects monsters doing crazy, you know, violence everywhere. So, yeah. OK. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree. I mean, I think it can. I, I don't know if it's a good, it's so bad, it's good movie, but I think it definitely works in if you have any taste at all for low-budget horror movies of the era. But, uh, yeah, so, um, go ahead. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, I don't know, I'm just kind of curious, have you, ever, have you ever tried to marathon any of the sequels that come after that, after this one? How many of them, the ones that come after this, have you tried to see? 
I've seen all of them at least once. Oh. Uh, but I never oh. tried to marathon them. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't yeah. know if I do that. Yeah, um, Netflix had them all one at some time in the past, you know, the, the whole series, I think. And I tried to marathon them. I think I, I think I watched all of like one through five. I might have skipped over one and went straight, which was the one that had uh, Kari Wurr in it. I, I can't remember. I think it was. Yeah, I think there were. I think I skipped over one and went straight to Hellraiser seven, and that's kind of when I tapped out a little ways into that because after Bloodlines, they kind of stopped being. Hellraiser movies and they sort of become like these unrelated horror films that somebody tried to shoehorn the Cenobites into. Like Hellraiser Inferno is basically just Jacob's Ladder only uh, Pinhead shows up at the end to kind of give the moral of the story. Like he's, you know, Rod Serling in the Twilight Zone or something. <laughs> That's not Pinhead, man. No. I did, no, but I actually did see one of the they made like two without Doug Bradley is Pinhead. I think I saw the second one. And I, I don't really remember much about it beyond, I don't know, they introduced this character who's sort of the the Hell's accountant. And I do kind of like that idea. I kind of like that even, you know, the Inferno has its guys who got to deal with all the red tape and bureaucracy crap. Yeah. But other than that, I just do not remember much else about it. Oh, and they kind of, Kind of to get back to what I said, kind of have they sort of dropped the most interesting idea of the whole series. That last one kind of introduces angels into the mix. And, oh, this will be shocking. Hell is bad, but it turns out that heaven is full of jerks, too. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, like, okay, calm down, Garth Ennis. (laughs) Supernatural did that like 11 seasons ago. And it was played out then. Yeah, I, I saw that one, and I didn't think it was bad, but it didn't really feel like a return. I If I ever see a Hellraiser reboot that works for me, I think it will have to try to go back to Clive Barker's original concept. Yeah, I think I've heard stories that, like, reports that, like, Clive Barker's work, maybe working on a Hellraiser TV show with David Gordon Green, who did the, like, recent Halloween movie, which I liked a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know Clive Barker he's one of those creators who kind of announces that he's going to do a this exciting new project and then you hear nothing about it again mm-hmm. I think like him Tarantino and Guillermo del Toro sort of kind of like take turns at that yeah and I also think Clive Barker has one or two unfinished trilogies yeah, um, Aberat. I can't remember if it's one or two, but yeah, no. I think like the great, great and secret show, and then the sequel to that, and, and then I think like his young adult books. Yeah, actually, yeah, that sounds yeah, right. Yeah, I actually went on kind of like a Clive Barker binge going through this because, like, you know, I like went back and rewatched the first two Hellraiser movies because I got that two disc that Arrow, in that Arrow Anchor Bay put out a while back. You know, just to refresh myself for this one. And then, you know, I went back and reread The Hellbound Heart. And then I went, and then after that, like, okay, I guess I'll just, you know, you know how it starts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I dug out the Books of Blood series, have been reading stuff like that. And, you know, reading like random stories from that. And I've kind of started a rework, uh, reread of Weave World, his first big like fantasy novel and that sort of thing. 
And also, oh goodness, I went back and just to satiate my curiosity, I went back and watched the first, the two pre-Hellraiser movies that Clive Barker had a hand in, Transmutations and Rawhead Rex. (laughs) And oh, Chad, I have regrets. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Rawhead Rex is rough. I, I, I kind of like it in a weird way, but yeah, it's not. It's yeah, not. Transmutations, like, Transmutations. I haven't seen that one. Not, you're not missing anything. It's kind of interesting to look at from the perspective of, okay, this is almost kind of a dry run for what Clive Barker did in Nightbreed. But, you know, the budget isn't there. Yeah. Oh, pardon oh, me. Yeah. That's yeah. all right. That's fantastic. But, um... Yeah, I I need to uh, I I definitely need to to revisit his work. Did you read the Scarlet Gospels by any chance? Uh, yeah, yeah, I wasn't crazy about it, but there was some stuff in there I liked. You know, I got even though, like I said, I'm not a big fan of how Pinhead's domain is now just hell, but it's kind of a unique kind of William Blakeish sort of depiction of it in there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, actually, like to get back to the two movies, like, yeah, I totally understand why Clive Barker, after those two movies, said, yeah, screw it. I'm going to do this myself when adapting his work. Because like I said, Transmutations is just a slog. There's some interesting ideas, but it looks cheap. The pacing is real bad and the acting, even from they, they do got have some like really reliable character actors in it, but even they're kind of bad and that makes the pacing even worse. And everything kind of looks like a cheap music video and it's shot <laughs> and it's shot like it feels like it's almost everything is shot from the same angle. But I don't know. The one thing I will give Rawhead Rex is that it looks like an actual movie at least. And I don't know, I actually think maybe we, we can like file Rawhead Rex away as kind of like a potential future episode or something because yeah, yeah, it's, definitely. it's kind of an interesting misfire because when you look at it and compare it to the short story, it's a faithful adaption of what happens in the story in a lot of ways, while at the same time it completely misses the whole point of the story. Uh-huh. And, that's, and you know, story it one. It's kind of one of Barker's most kind of hilariously vulgar stories. He just goes all in on the bad taste and all that. But there's still some like interesting stuff in there about like you know, patriarchal modern religion versus these ancient kind of feminine-oriented pagan stories and all that. And it also that and you know, the movie just kind of goes right by it without really dwelling on it. And it also just doesn't help that we've got like the one of the lousiest monster suits of the eighties. <laughs> like, like for those for people who haven't seen it, it basically imagine like King Kong if he was joined the band Guar, and that's kind of what Rawhead Red lo- Ricks looks like in the wide shots. But when they go in for like close-ups, it's this really stiff animatronic that doesn't have any real motion in the face and it's kind of cross-eyed. And I don't know, I watched a video on that and uh, they just said how much that looks like the national inquirer inquirer mascot bat boy. And I just can't unsee that now it's, it's bat boy with a Mohawk, you know, bat boy had a teenage rebellious phase, but 
That, but yeah, that, that's dead on. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, we need we need to file away, you know, Rawhead Rex for another episode or something like that. It's also a rare movie that doesn't uh, shy away from killing kids. Yeah. You always have to appreciate that. Yeah. Anyway, um, thank you. Thank you, Bill, for stopping by. I, I really had a great time. And oh. It reminded me why I enjoy doing this podcast so much. Uh, do you want to tell folks where they can find you? Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, I, I use the name NeoKefka99. Well, NeoKefka underscore 99, uh, which is kind of an old forum name that just kind of stuck with me. Um, I've got a Tumblr, omercifulheaves.tumblr.com. O with just O, merciful heaves as one words. Very long story behind that. And I'm on Facebook under the name Bill Smiley. And yeah, I had a good time. We got to do this again. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, um, and you can find me as uh, Chad Denton on YouTube. And um, you can also check out my other podcast, the Medici podcast, which is more about history than shitty movies. And also, um, I am writing John and Amore, LGBT superhero prose series uh, under johnandamore.com. Uh, I update less frequently as I like, but, uh, well, it is what it is. But I'm going to try to get on a more regular schedule. And thank you for Dude, I have listening. a blog that I haven't... Oh, sorry. oh yeah, go ahead. I have, go a, ahead. Yeah. I have a blog that I haven't updated in, like, years, man. So I don't... <laughs> I do not judge. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can also, speaking of blogs that I haven't updated, uh, trash... There's uh, trashculture.com, which hasn't updated in about a year. But maybe that'll change. Maybe that'll change. We'll see. Mm -hmm. All right. Good night, everybody. And thanks for joining us. Yeah. Good night.